I think what we need to do is explain how our principles of free speech, free inquiry, will help serve the cause of justice. The First Amendment, the constitutional freedom of speech and freedom of conscience that is the bulwark of our democracy. There was a passion in what was being said, affirming this, this what people consider a sacred constitutional right, freedom of speech and freedom of association. From the UC National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement, this is Speech Matters, a podcast about expression, engagement, and democratic learning in higher education. I'm Michelle Deutschman, the Center's Executive Director and your host. Almost every headline you read these days is focused on how generative AI, such as OpenAI's hugely popular ChatGPT, will revolutionize the way we live, work, and learn. Today's guest, Matt Peralt, a nationally recognized technology policy expert, will help us unravel the web of predictions about this new tool. Does ChatGPT signal the death knell for the college essay? Will classroom learning never be the same? Are we all going to lose our jobs to increasingly intelligent and personable chatbots? We will talk about AI's impacts, big and small. But first, let's turn to class notes, a look at what's making headlines. In higher education, we most often associate June with completion and commencement, but June is much more than the end of the year. It's also LGBTQ Pride Month, celebrated in June to commemorate the Stonewall Uprising, which took place on June 28, 1969, in New York City. For those of you who need a history refresher, the Stonewall Riots were a series of spontaneous protests by members of the gay community in response to a police raid that began in the wee hours of the morning. Patrons of the Stonewall and other lesbian and gay bars in Lower Manhattan fought back when police became violent. These riots are widely considered to be a watershed in the transformation of the gay liberation movement in the U.S. Cities and campuses around the United States celebrate Pride Month with parades, picnics, educational events, and more. It's not too late to grab a rainbow flag and mark the occasion. In June, we also commemorate Juneteenth, the day in 1865 that enslaved people in Texas learned they were free. This news was delivered two and a half years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation became law. President Biden designated Juneteenth, also known as Jubilee Day, Liberation Day, and Freedom Day, a federal holiday two years ago. If you're interested in learning more about this moment in history, I recommend On Juneteenth, a short but powerful read by historian and law professor Annette Gordon-Reed. But there's more. June also marks the end of the Supreme Court term when we play the waiting game. This year, the higher education community waits for what virtually everyone assumes will be the dismantling of affirmative action. Also on the docket is the matter of student debt relief, as well as the critical speech issues in 303 Creative. If you didn't already listen to Lambda's brilliant Jennifer Pizer discuss this case in season one, episode six, get up to speed before the opinion is released. In the flurry of all that June has to offer, there are yet more incidences of bannings and attempts to censor ideas allowed in schools. In one notable example, a Florida elementary school prohibited students from reading Amanda Gorman's The Hills We Climb, the poem Gorman read at Biden's inauguration. In better news, however, the coverage of the banning of the poem led to an upswing in sales of Gorman's books. Want to be part of the movement that fights censorship of ideas found in literature? 
On your summer vacation, read something from the American Library Association's list of the most banned books in 2022. You can find a link to it in the episode notes. One of my goals is to check them all off. And if you're able, support a local bookstore and buy your copy there. Happy reading. Now let's turn our attention to our guest, Matt Peralt. Matt is a professor of practice at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School of Information and Library Science, as well as the director of the school's Center on Technology Policy. Before that, Matt worked at Facebook, where he was a director on the public policy team and the head of the global policy development team. He covered issues including antitrust, law enforcement, and human rights, as well as oversaw the company's policy work on emerging technologies like artificial intelligence and virtual reality. Matt holds a law degree from Harvard Law School, a master's in public policy from Duke Sanford School of Public Policy, and a BA in political science from Brown University. Matt also serves as a tech policy consultant working with some companies that operate in this area. Welcome and thank you for joining us, Matt. Thanks so much for having me on. So I think we're going to just do some quick level setting. Right, chatbots have existed in various forms for decades, but the energy around chat GPT, the fear, the panic, the glee, the excitement has far surpassed how other AI advances have been received. And I'm wondering if you can share um, with us, why is there so much buzz, right? What makes chat GPT stand out? It's a really good question. And I'm not sure I know with any kind of definitiveness what the answer is, but I think people see in it something tangible and different. When we were at Facebook, a lot of the strategy around trying to get users to join the product had to do with how can you get them to see as quickly as possible something tangible and beneficial in the product. And we would talk about sort of an aha moment that people would have when they like saw some connection, usually to like a family event or some family occasion or something friend related. And then all of a sudden they would be interested in using the service, but you had to get them to that point where they saw some component of a value proposition in order to have, in order to show them that, that the product was worth using. And I think with ChatGPT, people very quickly and I should say like other integrations of similar technology, people can see very quickly that there is something new and valuable that you can, you know, ask it to generate a 500 word essay on a topic. And yes, there might be instances where there is inaccurate information or it's imperfect, or you would write something slightly differently, but the fact that you can get in many cases, something tangible and meaningful and valuable for you is really helpful. I have lots of examples of like my own usage, although I think they're like sort of silly and just related to like my idiosyncrasies and like the things that I am interested in. But I, I have had experiences where I think a search would, a, a search on a search engine pre-November uh, 2022 would take longer and to find a result that would be satisfying to me than it seems like you can get at least in some instances in a generative AI tool. Okay, so sort of a combination of like immediate gratification and also product. Um, and hearing you talk about this is making me think maybe I should be playing around more with it, right? Because I think I've heard a lot of examples of sort of the fun funny, um, but I haven't given as much thought as I think I should to how it might actually enhance my work. Um, and I don't know if I'm clearly in the minority because there's, you know, allegedly 100 million users. Uh, so maybe I need to get going on that. Right. But I'm a user too. And I'm not, and there's a difference between being, I mean, we can look at the ways that the tech companies have traditionally looked at usage metrics. 
um, monthly active users versus daily active users versus using something once every six months or once every year. My usage, I can confess, is more like, like I'm trying to think of the last time I was like actively using um, a generative AI tool and it might have been weeks. And I, I'm actually sort of embarrassed to say that because I, I think there is something in me that is hesitant to find it as useful, to experience its utility at its maximum. Um, and I think that's because, like for reasons that we can, I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but I think it's because it's coming for what I view as my expertise in the world. In my career, the thing that has, I think, enabled me to get various different jobs and do various different types of things is, is the ability to basically do a bad first draft. Uh, I said to someone at Facebook, like, um, I see my job as basically generating bad first drafts. And he was like, yes, 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 yes. And then he said, but could you do some good first drafts every now and then too? Um, and I think generative AI tools really take that off the table. Like it might not generate a perfect a perfect draft that is the kind of thing that you could, you know, a law review article or an op-ed or something or a speech, but they can generate, they can take you from a blank page to some form of a written product. And that ability to wrestle with the blank page and come up with something has always been a skill that I've prided myself on. I'm not saying I'm like the world's best person at it, but that's kind of been like the value proposition that I bring to the world. This technology is not one that is like other technologies sort of coming from coming for a part of the population that feels different from dis, different or distant from me. This isn't displacing low wage workers necessarily or exclusively. This is coming for people who write stuff for a living. And I am amongst those people who write stuff. And so I think the idea that like I would start every assignment or every project with seeing what I can get through a generative AI tool is like a very scary prospect for me. And my thought is if I continue to feel scared by it, I will be out of, out of a job. Someone said to me recently, um, you won't lose a job to generative AI. You will lose a job because you're not able to use generative AI effectively. And that seems really true to me. Like we're going to go into a world where like you have to know how to use the technology. And that means jumping in and figuring out what works and what doesn't and becoming a sophisticated user. And so I think that, that I'm saying to you today, like I can't really remember the last time I was playing around with a generative AI tool is going to really be the a mindset that will be to my detriment over time. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate your candor. And in some ways, it really sets the stage well, even though that might not have been what you were intending in terms of why there is so much talk in academic and higher education circles about generative AI, especially this focus on classwork, right? Is the college essay dead? Are people going to be able to give exams the same way? How are teaching and learning and research, which at its core is largely a lot of writing and thinking, kind of going to have to be upended? And I'm curious what your you know thoughts on that are, and then a kind of a follow-up, which I'll give you in advance is, you know, what do we do as we think about sort of, and I don't know if this is a real thing, but like, it's not media literacy, but AI literacy for people that are starting at least their higher education journeys. Yeah. So, well, I think what you just said will be the key thing. It, this is why I think like bans and slowing down and trying to get it out of the classroom is not the right approach. I mean, abstinence has never been a particularly successful approach to a variety of different issues, drugs, sex, I think it applies as well to AI, trying to get people to forswear the technology is I think a, a, a long, brutal losing battle. 
And, um, and, and also I think a disservice to students. I, I don't think the future of the workforce will be um, places where they say you can't use AI, you know, you can't use AI tools to generate something. The question will be how good can you make the thing, which will mean, I think, bringing a layer of skills and knowledge that sits on top of AI. And so I think the kinds of assignments that strike me as really interesting and important is, is, is actually encouraging or requiring even students to use the technology and then figuring out what's the learning experience that moves them beyond a kind of unsophisticated use of the technology to a more sophisticated one. And I think there are like zillions of ways that you can test that. I mean, this wouldn't work for like every type of a class, but I sort of thought if you used, if you asked students to generate an original draft of something using a generative AI tool, and then you graded their use of track changes to improve upon it, that is something that like, I don't think AI can cheat that. Um, and you can evaluate, you evaluate sort of two things. You evaluate the sophistication of a prompt, which I think will be hard and will be something that students need to learn. Like, how do I prompt the tool in the right way? And then you evaluate their ability to take a first draft to something that's really significantly better. That strikes me as the skill set for a lot of future jobs in the workplace, not generating the original draft. Well, and I think it's interesting because in some ways, what your focus is less on how we train students, I mean, ultimately there, but ultimately faculty need to know how they can do the best job of helping students to utilize it in a way, right? So in some ways, the training might have to be, wait, okay, how do people in different disciplines learn what kinds of prompts and assignments, right, to give to students and others in order to enhance kind of day-to-day learning in the classroom? I think that's totally true. And actually, I don't exactly know what it is, but there's something about how you're framing this that's making me think about my experience as a new academic watching the way, at least the institutions that I was close to treated the pandemic, which was sort of, I thought, oh my God, we need to hold on to our private, our prior model, like our prior business model, our prior pedagogical model as tightly as possible because we might lose it and then we'll be dead. And that struck me as a, as a major mistake. Um, like, I think there needs to be significant innovation in how we approach education to keep pace with the evolution in our world. Um, holding tightly to a prior model seems absurd to me and seems like a real disservice to students. I remember a conversation with someone where they were like, well, if you broadcast lectures on Zoom, then people will quickly realize that you could just go to YouTube and watch a lecture instead of coming to class and sitting in it. And I thought like that begs the question about what you're doing with your style of teaching. Like the issue shouldn't be, you got to come to class because if we put it on YouTube, then our business model is significantly undermined. If we just commoditize education and everyone can access anything, then all of a sudden you wouldn't pay the tuition and that's a problem. That's not the right framing or rationale. Um, the, the, I think the, the, the provocative thing that the pandemic asked of us, and I think generative AI will ask of us as well, is how do we take light of the world that we're in and figure out how to provide a rich educational experience? And to me, that means engaging with the technology and using it, not trying to get students to put it in a box and pretend it doesn't exist. Well, and I think it's so interesting because one of the reasons I like the work that 
the center does is because we're looking at higher education, but the idea being that higher education on campuses are just microcosms for society, right? Yes. And already we're talking about AI in education, but we're also talking about all of these things, the privatization of education, the commodification, right, of the classroom, right, that AI is just another window that we're looking at through that, like, how are we framing it, right? And why, how do we need, like you said, to sort of have an evolution of education? I mean, I'd like to look back and think that, like, right, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't search engines. At some point, there weren't calculators, and that education has been able to evolve. And that, you know, is this just another step in that evolution, or is it really something so, you know, is it really a five alarm fire, or is it just another step in the process, or is it both? Maybe it's not either or. I think that's right. I think it's both. I mean, I, I guess to my view is like I would put much less weight on like how harrowing is it, you know, like, is it going to reduce enrollment? Are we going to lose tuition? Like those just feel to me to be the wrong questions to ask. I think the question is like how rich by which I mean intellectually and culturally can this phenomenon be for the educational experience and for cultivating people to be curious and engaged and to live gratifying lives. Um, and I think we spend a lot of time saying like, well, let's categorize on a scale of one to 10, how disruptive this is. And like, this is how we currently get the money that allows us to keep the doors open. And what if this undermines that? And that just strikes me as like, that, that is, the, that is an approach that I think is not desirable, not sustainable. I think it's a disservice to students. And my hope would be that if universities take that approach, that they, that there's competition that kind of comes in and makes it harder for them to take that approach in the long run. No, I agree. And, you know, I think in some ways, unfortunately, bad news sells. And so I think that might be part of why there has been, I feel like, much significant more focus on sort of the bad stuff that's going to happen as opposed to potentially the good stuff. It really is weird, isn't it? Like, I just this number of things that I've read that kind of try to wrestle with the value proposition, the positive value proposition are so few and far between. And like, you know, I didn't have this experience in school because I... It was, I mean, again, on the things I do relatively well versus relatively poorly, um, long list of relatively poorly, but on the list on the relatively well side, taking something in my brain and turning it into a written product was always something that was relatively easy for me. Um, That is not easy for everyone. You know, that is a thing that like lots of people struggle with and there is a sort of skewed advantage for people in the world who are able to do that thing well. And that is different from having good ideas. It's really like a subset of it. It's like having an idea that you can translate into a written product. And that strikes me as just like such a profound shift in the planet where there's much more of a meritocracy around idea generation that doesn't just privilege people who have certain writing and speaking capability. And like that to me is just like profoundly revolutionary. Not not revolutionary in the sense of like, I don't think, the way that it felt when I started at Facebook and there were like people marching into our rear square that were like pointing to Twitter and Facebook as like the things that were generating pro-democracy movements in the Middle East. But it is very revolutionary in terms of, you know, giving, leveling a playing field for idea expression that feels just like unbelievably important to me. And, um, there really aren't that many, I just like, you know, there aren't that many, there are people who are sort of talking about, you know, but what if AI makes something up? And that feels like a sort of inevitable thing that just seems so much less consequential to me, I think. I mean, I don't, I, don't, I shouldn't belittle it, but so much, so much less consequential than this like fundamental shift in the ability to express oneself. 
Well, let's start with this kind of like fundamental shift, because I think it's, again, an interesting take on something that I've read about, which is sort of like how will generative AI impact kind of equity issues on on campuses? And again, what I've mostly read is like, is AI going to merely augment pre-existing socioeconomic inequities, right, or not? And it Again, I'd like to hear your response to that question writ large, but the example you just gave is actually talking about a way that it could level the playing field and an, an, an inequity that maybe people aren't always thinking of when they think about who has access to technology, computers, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, so the, the, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on this and I don't think I'm a particularly like thoughtful voice on it. Um, but a, fr- a friend of mine wrote a piece a while ago. Um, there was a law review article, and he also published it in in law, the Lawfare blog called Robophobia. And it was about how people have sort of disproportionate fears when it comes to robots. Like, I think one of the examples in the piece was if you have human delivery of medical information and you have robotic AI de- deliver uh, delivery of medical information that people prefer the human delivery, even if the information is shown to be less effective or impactful. So they, they, they essentially they have a preference for worse outcomes if it's delivered by a human over a robot. And in his point was like, we're sort of disproportionately and um, unstrategically, we have a preference for human stuff over robot stuff. And one of the examples, other examples I think he gave in the piece was related to the issues that you're describing, which is like, you know, I think there's understandable and appropriate attention on AI bias, but it's not an issue where humans have like a long track record of excelling. So I guess my, my thought about it is like, um, like we should be conscious of bias, but we should look at it as an opportunity, I think, to, improve upon this aspect of humanity that has like has a relatively poor track record to date. And I don't know like how optimistic we should be about that. I mean, maybe there are reasons to be very pessimistic, but like when you look at, you know, there's been a lot written about like the use of AI in, um, in bail determinations. I think that might be an issue that, you know, I don't know if you've tracked and maybe can correct me if I say anything that's off base here, But, but, but my understanding is like the AI has been biased in bail determinations. But, you know, again, like humans are, are, are not good at this. And I, th- I, it seems to me like maybe there's some potential to turn over some part of a process like that to, to an entity that might have an opportunity to exhibit less bias than humans do in some situations. And again, like that's, that's a thing that I would be excited about um, rather than fearing. I definitely think I need to read that piece um, by your friend. I, I might be one of yeah. those people that prefers human contact. I mean, and I have to, I think it makes, it presses me to think about why that is. Um, and I also, again, I think in today's world, optimism is in such short supply. So I'm sort of happy to have a guest who's sort of acknowledging that there are likely going to be inaccuracies and problems and bias, but that you're able to like flip it and say, but again, you're seeing it through the lens of like opportunity and benefit, which I just, again, I think is in sort of short supply. You know, and I kind of wanted to ask you, I'm, I'm just picking, there's been a lot of open letters by people and researchers who've helped to, you know, develop this and other technology. There was one recent open letter, I think it's like 23 words, and it said, quote, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. 
are. And I think I just I want to ask you again, like, do you think that message is sort of accurate slash necessary and or, you know, is it sort of techno hysteria? And I think it gets more credibility. And again, I'm not an expert on this because it comes from people who are like in the, you know, in the field. And I'm just curious if you have kind of thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I would say I don't have strong thoughts on the merit of the message because it, you know, it seems like there is some existential risk and we can say like, is that a 1% chance or a 50% chance or an 80% chance or a 100% chance? But like, even if it's a 1% chance, I mean, the end of humanity is like a significant thing. We should probably be concerned if there's a 1% chance of the end of humanity. Um, I, I, but I'm less focused on that and more focused on what does that mean? What does that mean in terms of what we do? And when people say like, well, let's like slow down development of the product, that to me feels like a, a pretty concerning remedy because slow slow down just means that that just like that just punishes good actors who follow the rules and lets other people continue developing the technology in ways that would be problematic. I think, um, I, I, and it doesn't seem to me like we're going to learn it. We're going to know anything in six months or a year or two years. I don't think that's going to mean like now we can bless the technology as safe. So I, I think, un, unfortunately, I think we're in a position of like, we need to sort of continue developing the technology and then ideally learn as we go. So it, to the extent it, it, that that perspective results in let's cease or abstinence is the best approach, like those things I think are deeply problematic. Or if, they, if it provides more momentum to bands and that sort of thing, I, I, I don't think that's the right approach. Um, I also think it's problematic in terms of thinking about governance mechanisms, because I think it puts us in a position where we start moving up the spectrum in terms of the level of stringency of governance. And, you know, some people have suggested like something modeled on atomic regulation, for instance, as the, you know, as the right model for thinking about um, AI. And I think it feels to me like that is a very strong view that maybe it's right, but it feels likely to me to be, to overstate the risks that it would be like, you know, dropping a bomb that would wipe out a city or hundreds of thousands, you know, kill hundreds of thousands of millions of people. Um, it doesn't strike me that it is likely at that same risk level. And, you know, nuclear energy is not known for being a field of like immense innovation and, sort of dynamism, it is tightly regulated because it's so dangerous. And part of the result of that is it really hinders the pace of innovation. And I'm concerned that the more stringent the mechanisms are, the more you cut off competition, like it makes it harder for startups to compete, the more you harm innovation. I think in some ways you sort of freeze the technology and you learn less about it. So I feel like a lot of what we've talked about so far is kind of like, there's a lot that we don't know we should learn as we go and ideally figure out ways to mitigate harms and maximize positive use cases. I'm not trying to minimize the likelihood that there will be harm. It's just, I think you want to learn as you go and develop better and better mechanisms for governing the technology as you know things. And right now, I don't think we sort of know enough to say we should regulate this like nuclear. Well, I think this is kind of, I don't know if you're anticipating where we're going to go next, which is about regulation, right? And I'm wondering, you know, of course, there's this idea, you know, should we use 230, something like 230, but um, this is where I would love to kind of play on your policy expertise. If you could take us through some of the alternative proposals that are out there and, and maybe even opine on what you think has the most likelihood. I don't, I don't want to say success because that is not the right word, but. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it seems right now that everyone, 
everyone knows this is a thing that's important and everybody knows this is a thing that where something should be done. And I don't think there's, I, I haven't seen a lot of evidence of this is the thing, like this is the, the right way forward. I'm very, I'm obsessed probably to a fault with this idea of regulatory experimentation. So that typically we regulate from a position of certainty, like we know how it will be and thus we need nuclear style regulation and we will enact it tomorrow and then it will be on the books in perpetuity. Um, that strikes me as the wrong model for tech for a lot of reasons. And actually one thing that I think is like a little counterintuitive about it is that it actually makes it hard to initiate lawmaking because people are fearful that if you put a bad law in the books, it will just be there forever. And so it actually creates a kind of higher bar for getting something done. And, and the result is, as we've seen, like in the federal government and tech policy, essentially nothing happens, like really nothing. And um, I have my opinions about like how various different proposals might play out in practice, but lots of those opinions are probably likely to be proven wrong when we see how something actually proves, plays out in practice, but we don't pass laws, so we can't actually see that. Generative AI, I think, is like a perfect area for experimentation, um, which which we are like, you know, people are very hesitant to experiment in tech policy, which I don't understand. We have COVID vaccines because we experimented with vaccines on humans on a life or death issue. Um, you know, clinical trials in medicine are explicitly about experimentation to try to develop things that are safer and better and improve humanity. That certainly strikes me as something that's more important than artificial intelligence. Um, or other areas of tech policy. So I think an experimental model where we kind of try out two different things, like one is different types of products. So there's like experimentation on the product side. The second is experimentation on the policy side. Like what are different types of governance regimes that might be desirable? That feels to me to be like a really helpful way to move forward so that if we do something that has adverse results, we will learn about that and correct it the same way if you do a medical trial and you learn about side effects of a certain treatment then you try to alter the treatment so as to avoid the side effects. So I, that's the kind of approach that I like. That approach, um, you know, <laughs> I guess as a good academic, my ideas have no traction in the real world. Um, I would not say that there are lots of like policy proposals that sort of mimic that approach. You could make the argument, I think, that like there's been much more of it that's happened at the state level with different states passing different things in tech policy reform. California has been a leader in that in many ways. And so that gives us a little bit of data that, we're, that we can compare across states to see how different things work in practice. Um, the federal government has done very little experimentation. And my guess in generative AI is that we won't, is that we won't see it. I, I am fascinated by the analogy to clinical trials in medicine, because when you mention that, that seems like so natural, even though there's so many like unnatural things about it, which is like experimenting on people, right, who are alive. But it makes it makes sense. And it does make me kind of see through a different vantage point of like, why aren't we doing experimentation? Like, right, that the focus is like, what are we going to do on the federal level? What's Congress going to do? It's going to apply everywhere, kind of like full stop stat. Yeah. It seems it, right. It just strikes me as so bizarre. And there are laws that like, I mean, one of one is a, is reformed to Section 230, which is um, maybe all of your listeners know this, but it's basically a law that provides immunity to platforms that host content. And so if you wanted to file a defamation case for content posted on Twitter about you, you could go, you could file it against the poster, but Twitter would likely not be liable. And that has enabled platforms to host content because they can host content without fear of getting hauled into court every time someone posts something that might be deemed to be illegal. You can go after the individual, just not the platform. 
And, um, and so there's a law passed a few years ago called SESTA-FOSTA that was aimed at um, sex trafficking and protecting sex workers. And like almost immediately after it was passed, the sex worker industry started campaigning for the law's repeal. And um, I think in a world of experimentation, we would, we would not fault the law's drafters for that. We would say like, it's noble to try to, like that seems like a noble cause. That's a noble objective. And you could try different, many different ways to try to achieve that objective. And this particular one seems like it has not worked. Um, and in a world of experimentation, just like with clinical trials, like you would be generating evidence that hopefully would see the light of day. So you could actually evaluate in a more nuanced way how it actually has played out in practice. Instead, we are in this bizarre universe where that law's passed. It seems like the community it was designed to protect dislikes the law and would like it removed. And yet, politically, it's very hard to <laughs> very hard to repeal a law that's aimed at protecting against sex trafficking. That is challenging politically to take a vote on that issue. And so it will just be on the books, you know, in perpetuity, even though it makes sex workers' jobs less safe and secure. And that's just an example, I think, of like, the like, that's not, I think that's less about a problem in the substance. I mean, you know, you can say that the drafters of the law should have anticipated that result. There are a lot of people who are advocating on it who anticipated that result. But I think it's more of a problem in just like the way that our policy world is set up, that we have this particular way of doing things that makes it very hard to do anything. I mean, this law is one of the few laws that actually has reformed Section 230. There have been dozens of different proposals introduced. This law actually went through. And then it's not a particularly good one, I think, and it's just on the books forever. I mean, it's the law of unintended consequences, right? But you would like to think that if there are unintended consequences, then we can make some changes to have the consequences that maybe we intended and what you're saying that like for many reasons, including that everything right now politically is challenging, that there isn't room to do that. Yeah, I think it's, it's, just, it's, a, it's a lot of weight to put on a lawmaker on day one. You know, it, that is a that is a big weight, and I I, I don't and I don't envy them. It is really hard. I mean, we 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 are, our centers about to release a report on age age verification, age assurances. So like how so a lot of activity right now in online safe online child safety, and if you're focused on protecting children online, which again is a very noble cause, then you have to know who a child is. And it turns out to know who a child is, you also have to know who is not a child. And so if you are really taking age verification seriously, meaning you want to accurately know every person on the internet who is or is not a child, then that has real privacy consequences, right? I mean, that is a, that requires a massive amount of data gathering and data knowledge by companies that many people want to know less about them. Um, that, so I, in, in the course of this report, you know, we're very focused on trying to develop recommendations that policymakers can use. Like, it is really hard in age verification to have good ones. It is just unbelievably hard because every direction that you want to go in has big costs. And so it's more about figuring out, like, what is the path that minimizes those costs or has costs that you're prepared to bear. And that, again, just seems to me that it's just ripe for experimentation, like to really learn more about how this plays out in practice. What are the privacy consequences? How do kids experience this? How do parents experience this? But we don't have a framework that enables us to do that experimentation. And so I can tell you as the parent of a 13 and 11 year old who are we're starting to already like work on some of these things, like I want to read that report. Um, and also, just so you know, this kind of conversation for me is why I want to go get my MPP, because I think the policy implications of things are so fascinating. But I don't want us to get too in the weeds. And I do want to pull back a yeah. little bit, not just to 
um, sort of the regulation piece, but to the kind of like speech aspect of it. And not even so much like is a does AI have, you know, speech protections, but more this question of sort of when I think back to you know, social media, right, and and the ways that it really changed the landscape of expression, both, you know, in the U.S. and globally, and sort of, again, asking you just to spitball on this, it's, it's a big question, but do you anticipate um, that generative AI may have similar sort of impactful um, results on speech and expression? And you can kind of take that where you want. Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier in the conversation, like I think it has a massive one in terms of being able to like to literally translate ideas to a written product. And that just feels to me like it has massive expression possibilities. It is, I think, helpful to keep in mind that in the two main implementations of the product to date, like either uh, an open text field where you get a result or a search engine, which I guess is an open text field where you get a result, um, Neither of those really are distribution platforms. So the kinds of things that we that most that many people have been concerned about when they when they are cons- when they express concerns about social media aren't present right now for generative AI. In that, like people wouldn't care a lot less, I think, about content on Facebook or content on Twitter if that con- or content on YouTube if it was not if there was no distribution if it was just you and a computer. Um, where people are concerned is like that there is you know information that gets distributed broadly. Certainly, we could be headed in that world. Like you could imagine uh, generative AI helping you to compose tweets, which I would like because I struggle in tweet composition, um, or helping to compose, you know, a Facebook post or an Instagram post or something. Certainly, that that world could be coming, but it's not where we are right now. So I think that does sort of shift the dynamics around it. Um, in I, I wrote a piece in Lawfare in Feb, I think it was February, about whether. ChatGPT and other generative AI tools would get Section 230 protection. So would they be considered, the, the technical legal term is an interactive computer service or an information content provider. Interactive computer service is a host. Information content provider is the creator. Hosts are protected. Creators are not. And it, my view in the piece was that um, in most cases, they probably are not going to be protected. They probably are not going to be considered hosts because they do actually generate the content. So the language in the statute is um, is responsible in whole or in part for developing the content. So if you if you develop the content in whole or in part, then you would be considered an information content provider. It strikes me as difficult to argue that a, a generative AI tool does not at least ge- develop the content in part. Since I wrote that piece, I think more thoughtful and better legal minds have weighed in on that question. So Eugene Volokh has written about it in the defamation context. Um, Derek Bambauer has written about it. Jess Myers has written about it. And I think all of their arguments are incredibly nuanced and thoughtful. So I would suggest your listeners, if they're interested in this issue, check out what they've said about it. One uh, sort of flippant summary of it is that, uh, that I think I sort of didn't treat didn't give enough deference to attention to in the lawfare piece is that it really is product specific. So the way a generative AI tool surfaces information um, will have an impact on whether, whether it gets 230 protection. I do think the concern that I had in the piece, so I, so, so that, that is my view that it, that it won't get 230 protection in lots of cases, in lots of cases, and that that will result in companies that use that technology significantly limiting use cases because they will fear legal liability. And I think that's a net negative. 
Um, so even if even if judges side with generative AI platforms in some cases, I think there will be enough cases where they don't, where there will be legal liability that will stand in the way of innovation. And it also seems to me that if what we're if the legal guidance is you're totally fine as long as you don't do anything that's really generative, then what we're essentially doing is taking the most interesting use cases off the table. So I, I think, I mean, this is this is in the land of, you know, it's nice in theory, but will never happen. It would be useful, I think, to have an intermediary liability regime that does protect generative AI tools, at least somewhat. Maybe you make it conditional on certain things. Maybe it's time limited. There are maybe lots of different sort of asterisks that you can place next to the, the immunity to try to address potential concerns. But I think without it, we're headed to a universe where in many cases, generative AI tools won't get 230 protection and that will significantly impede innovation. Well, it sort of reminds me of, of what I say about free speech cases, right? Which is the devil's kind of in the details, right? I mean, I think people uh -huh. want an answer like, oh, does the is it protected or is it not protected? And it's like, well, hold on. Sometimes I can just say it is or it isn't, but sometimes it depends on the context and where was it said and who said yes. it, right? And how was it said? And that to me seems potentially analogous to kind of the products. Um, you know, of course, part of me is like, I don't want to be talking about the presidential election because I feel like the election cycles start way too early, but I'm going to do it anyway and ask you a little bit about this because people are already starting to say things like, this is going to be the, you know, the AI election and, you know, this idea of continue AI will some generative AI will be part of, you know, increasing misinformation, whether it's, you know, misinformation of, you know, audio or graphics and, um, I'm just curious what you think about that, you know, idea and whether, you, you know, generative AI is really going to be making misinformation and disinformation, you know, so much worse. Or again, that's just sort of the negative, one of those phobia kind of robo, I think it's robophobia, you said, yeah. <laughs> did I say it right? Yeah. Is it robophobia yeah. or is it something that's real? Yeah, well, I think it's real. I mean, every election would there, you know, there's a lot of incentive financial and otherwise for people who are active in an election to use whatever tools they possibly can to try to advance their interests. And um, the incentive is very, very strong to do that, whether you're a candidate or you're like a communications agency trying to support candidates, you know, uh, if you are a political advertising service trying to support candidates, or if you're, you know, a foreign government attempting to disrupt the election or a hacker trying to disrupt the election, you would use whatever tools are at your disposal. So. I would be surprised if AI wasn't actively used in the election. Um, I guess the question is like, well, you know, what are the use cases that are particularly harmful and what does that tell us about how we might govern the technology? And my hope would be that we like, that we are very open eyed to the potential, to the harms and that we develop thoughtful policy tools for cabining those harms. But I, I think that means not again, not blocking the technology. I mean, one, one thing that the slowdown movement does is to the extent, I think you asked about this earlier, like to the extent the project is developing literacy, we need to have exposure. We, we cannot go dark and we cannot be in an abstinence mode because that just stands in the way of learning. And so we need to learn and learning will have, there, will, there are downsides to being in learning mode. I mean, I think that there are things that will happen that will be scary and horrible. And my hope is that we are clear eyed about that and can 
incorporate those learnings into whatever future governance regime we have. One, one dynamic that I find to be very disingenuous and frustrating is political candidates saying one thing and doing something very different on tech policy issues. So there are a lot of candidates, for instance, who talk extensively about the importance of privacy and then develop can purchase lists, voter lists, and then share that data across, you know, a whole bunch of different jurisdictions with a whole bunch of different people. And at least for me, I tend to experience direct consequences of that. So whenever I'm asked to give money to a political campaign, one of the reasons I'm hesitant is that giving money to a representative running for office in North Carolina does not mean that in two years, I'm going to want to get spam text messages from a candidate running in Wisconsin. And I think for anyone who has ever given any amount of money in a political race, they know that that sort of thing happens. And I find that to be deeply frustrating, both because I don't like the spam from the random candidate in some other place, but also because if you are, if you are doing that with data, then it suggests that you don't think the right regime is certain types of data privacy regimes that you might be advocating for. And that disconnect, I just find to be incredibly frustrating. Like we need a regime that works for a variety of use cases and it should work for political candidates and it should work for consumers. The idea that you're going to advocate for one thing on behalf of, con of, in theory, on behalf of consumers and then treat consumer data very differently when they happen to donate money to you or sign up for a list um, for your campaign frustrates me because it suggests a sort of disingenuineness in the governance that, I, that you know, I find frustrating. And I, I can see the same thing emerging in AI where people actively use AI in their campaigns and then give speeches where they talk about how terrible AI is. And I just hope that there would be, I mean, this, this we know how this is going to play out. I mean, hypocrisy in campaigns and politics, unfortunately, but. It just sends the, I mean, I think, you know, you're, you're thinking about this from a student perspective, like what can people learn? And I think it is confusing and disingenuous to have people hear how terrible the technology is and then see people actively using it and try to figure out well, what does that mean for how I go about things. Like when, when I when I have taught, I have really tried to put students in the position of being decision makers, sometimes at, in places that they don't wanna, they would never in theory wanna be or say they don't wanna be, you know, you're sitting on a public policy team at Facebook or you're, you know, you're a Republican and you're sitting on a Elizabeth Warren's, you know, you're a staffer of Elizabeth Warren or you're a Democrat and you're a staffer for Ted Cruz. And part of the reason to put students in that position is like, you have to be in a world where you make those decisions about trade-offs in a, in a true way. And I, I hope that we don't teach students to be the, the type of person who preps a speech on how awful AI is and then goes back to the office afterward and tries to use AI to generate all of the senators, you know, future speeches or future targeting lists or whatever it is. And, um, and I anticipate that we will see that in this election and that will be frustrating. Well, I mean, I think I don't in any way want to simplify what you're saying, but I think to me it speaks to role modeling. And it's kind of the same issue that we see in deliberative dialogue or dialogue across difference. Like you can talk about how everyone should do that, but then when you turn around and are using like inflammatory, ugly rhetoric in the next breath, yeah. right? I think that's very confusing and it doesn't send a message of it's like, do what I say, but not what I do. There's been so much that we've talked about, about sort of the like big landscape of sort of how much more there is to learn and that in order to regulate appropriately, we have to learn more. Um, and 
one of the ways that we always kind of like to kind of close the episode is is asking guests if there is a tangible action that listeners maybe can take, um, right? I mean, it seems like this is a moment, you know, no matter who you are, whether you're a student or an administrator or a faculty member or a policymaker, we're on kind of a precipice of how this technology is going to be used. And I guess my question for you is, is there something, even something really small that listeners can be thinking about or preparing for as AI becomes, you know, more commonplace in society? So I think that the, the number one thing that, that I would encourage students to do, and, and this goes back to the early part of our conversation, is to use the technology. I, I think it's a really exciting moment to become a sophisticated user. And I felt this pretty strongly, again, going back to sort of how things played out in the pandemic when lots of people were sort of saying, we need to be in the classroom or like, if you're on Zoom, you need to conduct yourself in XYZ way. And I felt like that was really a missed opportunity because, you know, if you think that you are going to go to school and when you graduate, you're never going to have to absorb information via a screen or deliver information via a screen and be effective, you're not well positioned for the workforce. And, you know, the pandemic gave us this moment to like really develop a skill set there that I think would set students up well for the future in a way that, you know, without it, I think if everything's just in person, you're not developing that skill. And that's a really, a really, really valuable skill. And isn't better to be developing it while you're in school and you can experiment and fail and, and learn than doing it in a workplace where you might get fired or not promoted or, you know, feel very alienated from your job. Um, and I think we're at a similar sort of moment where, you know, it's important for students to actively understand how to use the technology. And I think that probably means more in like a daily basis kind of way than a, you know, once every six months kind of way. And that doesn't mean the technology is perfect. That doesn't mean it's like low risk. That doesn't mean there aren't major downsides. But I think seeing those things and experiencing them intimately and becoming sophisticated, becoming sophisticated users is really important. I, I think that's great. And I think it applies to, you know, any constituent in higher education. And I'm already thinking that maybe at our next like center team meeting, we should be, you know, starting to dedicate time regularly to experimenting and, you know, using it. Um, yeah. You, you have been so generous with like your time and your expertise. And in my mind, you should be running, you know, AI policy. <laughs> um, so, so we're really grateful to you. I want to give you a chance to add if there's anything else um, that you, you don't think we were able to touch on. Um, and then, of course, reserve the right to have you back maybe a year, a year from now to see kind of where we are. Yeah, that would be wonderful. It's I mean, if you to profess an interest in experimentation, I think that means you have to have a commitment to like um, to being wrong and or you have to have a commitment to examining when you are wrong and like looking carefully at how things have played out. And my expectation is um, that a lot of the stuff we've discussed today, maybe we had predictions that turn off to be turn out to be off base. And my hope would be those would be interesting and fruitful areas to understand and learn from. And I think that like you are role modeling intellectual humility, which is something that we talk about so much, right, in the speech and dialogue space. And I don't think is often role modeled enough in academia, which is that like part of learning is, is, is failing and getting it wrong. And then you just do it again. And so kind of, I think we'll end on that very optimistic note of which is just like, you know, to fail is to live and then to do better. And again, um, it was great to have you. Thanks so much. I don't want to head into summertime without offering congratulations to all of the recent graduates who are heading into the world beyond college. Kudos on this significant achievement. 
With the Supreme Court term wrapping up in 10 days and most state legislatures out of session, join us next month for a conversation about the impact of court rulings and newly minted laws. Talk to you then.